Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, welcome to one more episode of the AMR Studio. If it's the first time that you're listening to us because you just came across our podcast now, we're very happy that you're here with us and I hope you can listen to the episodes we had before as well. And if you're a returning listener, thank you for being loyal and being here with us and uh, we hope you enjoy this episode as well. Today we are featuring an interview with Dr. Cole Delima Hutchison from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and specifically from the Antimicrobial Society part. We had somebody in the previous episode also that collaborated with them and he was here back on 21st of September of last year to teach at a workshop on antibiotic use and human behavior. And we had the pleasure to also interview him for our podcast. So Jenny Jackman did the interview. And I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did when I listened to it. So today we have Dr. Cole DeLima Hutchison with us. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself first? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm a research fellow um, in the Anthropology of Science at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I'm working on antimicrobial resistance, but from an anthropological perspective. And I might just add to that, that I'm playfully thinking about what is an anthropology of microbes. It sounds like a really interesting perspective. What do you mean by anthropology of microbes? So I guess like uh, traditionally anthropology has kind of taken the human as its subject. As the root with the... <laughs> yeah, obviously anthropology, human, yeah, that's the kind of where it is. But um, I think recently, or in the last kind of decade or two, it's been, anthropology has been more open to gauging with hard sciences or mm -hmm. natural sciences. Um, and that includes uh, biology and microbiology. And I'm thinking, partly my thinking around this is also with the development of, say, microbiology, you also have a change in what it means to be human. This notion that we have microbes. Yeah, the, the, micro the microbiome and exactly. the microbiome and human association. Totally. So yeah. I'm just trying to think, what would that mean to do an anthropology of humans, which then includes the microbes as part of the human? <laughs> <laughs> Make, define a human as more of a network of many things rather than just the human. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So you're an anthropologist in your background? How would you define <clears throat> yourself, I guess? Uh, If I'm defining myself academically, I guess. Yeah, academically. <laughs> <laughs> so if I say academically, um, I think the where I sit just now is probably mostly anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, although I started out in genetics and I graduated in 2004 in genetics. And then I've kind of made this sort of slightly circuitous route to anthropology. Although now that I'm focusing on it, like looking at microbes, antibiotics, AMR. It's kind of bringing me back yeah, from a slightly different angle. Tying in the genetics it's again. It's fun, actually. I'm really... It must be really useful to have the genetics background as well. I think so, but I think genetics has changed so much. Yeah. And it's amazing just how quickly you forget <laughs> things as well. Of course. I mean, there's a lot that's happened just since two, three years ago, to yeah, be honest, exactly. since I started my it's PhD. It's a field that moves so quickly. Yeah. Is it fun to look back at genetics and see this Yeah, definitely. I think, progression? Um, yeah, I think like... I think so. I think when I in two thousand four, so that's kind of around the human genome and yeah, uh, kind of time and there's a lot of hopefulness there. Totally, and, and the new uh, we're sequencing. Find, and we're gonna find like you know, 
different notions of what it would, a gene would mm-hmm. be able, you'd be able to attribute to a gene, and obviously that's being complicated yeah. massively. And then obviously the microbiome complicates mm-hmm. that even more. Um, and I think personally, I find that fascinating. Rather, yeah. you know, because it makes it Absolutely. more complicated to act. <laughs> yeah. So how did you make this turn back into antimicrobial resistance? Mm. So genetics and anthropology, and then it turned back around. How did that turn go? So I guess um, partly towards the end of my PhD, so my PhD was mostly focused on nutrition um, from an anthropological perspective, mm-hmm. but, um, but towards the end of that I had some a bit of kind of postdoctoral work, which was looking at uh, the use of RDTs, rapid diagnostic tests in malaria, mm-hmm. um, and in that there was some of the stuff that was found was this kind of notion that when you use RDTs you get maybe some reduction in the use of antimalarials, but there seems to be in some cases an increase in the use of antibiotics. Okay. And at that time I was working with Claire Chandler and she'd been working on that for some time and she was, this was a field that seemed to be kind of opening that mm-hmm. was maybe where somewhere to develop. And then I guess on a more personal level, I've had kind of gut problems, I guess, for longer than that. And it seems an interesting way to try and kind of combine and learn mm-hmm. a bit more for myself as well. So you have a personal connection to AI yeah. research as well. Yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. I guess we all do. But yeah, it, but I think a lot of people more... do when they think go back and they really understand what some cases were in family members and friends, then you really do get a personal connection to it. Hmm. But sometimes it's it's part of the problem with AMR resistance as a something that people can see. Hmm. It's often defined as something else, and the resistance is like a side note that's lost in the final story. Hmm. But, I mean, it's tragic when people have to hear these stories or really difficult when it's causing someone to suffer more. But it is always, I think we should bring forth that it is resistance more, that sure. it's the problem. It's not just an infection. So in my, in my case, it was more like, I think, a kind of dysbiosis or kind of rather than resistance per se. I guess mm-hmm. it was more my groups. But um, I can totally... Yeah, also it can connect as well. Sure. So how does your perspective as with an anthropology genetics mm-hmm. background... Uh, coincide with others in AMR research? I guess, you know, as um, kind of sitting in the sea of a, an anthropologist, one is maybe predominantly asked on to kind of focus on behavioral change. Mm-hmm. Um, and this notion of that uh, we should be changing people's behavior so they take medicines in the correct way. Yes. However, I think like one of the things that like uh, the Amos group to so the antimicrobials inside group and colleagues and myself mm-hmm. and others are interested in is actually going a bit beyond this kind of focus on human behavior mm-hmm. and thinking about what does it what are the contexts in which there is a push to change people's behavior how desirable is that you know what yeah. if we're thinking about context of Sweden or the UK and then we're thinking about exporting that to a different context whether it's Myanmar or or Malawi, you know, mm-hmm. where the health infrastructure is very different, access to medicines is different, maybe there's limited access or it's not regulated. But in that context, maybe the government is also problematic for many of the populations, so yeah. regulation might not be always favourable or distrusted, you know. So I think one of the things we're trying to do is kind of bring a little bit of that. And the understanding of the complexity of the situation. Yeah, exactly. That it's not just we need to change this behavior. That's very, that sounds quite, I mean, not simple. No. It's always hard to change behavior, but it's very. It's a straightforward answer. Totally. But it, I think that's been something that's talked about a lot, and mm. it's not something that I think like I like the way works. you phrase that in some ways, because it's this kind of thing of like the complexity of it. 
in the sense that kind of the notion of just giving we have the right information we give them yeah. the right information that sounds kind of simple but if we think about the kind of microbiology and the genetics of mm-hmm. resistance that's very complicated yeah um and i don't know how comparable it is but you know actually the, the context of where people take medicine get infected mm-hmm. how they think about these things is also very complicated and i think to be able to do that justice you know and yeah. to really create you know some change is necessary obviously mm-hmm. But maybe we need to think a bit more carefully about where those changes should happen, yeah. and that where in that one context it's maybe not appropriate for it to change the same Absolutely. way in another context. Yeah, that one that we really can't just have. It's not a one size fits all solution. It's a we need to look at what's the problem in this area. How do we best approach that problem? What can we do to fix it? But yeah. and I think a lot of this comes down also, as you said, about the health infrastructures. I mean, mm. a lot of the problem with AMR is, of course, that not just that there's resistance, but there's not access to antibiotics either. And a lot of that comes down to the lack of infrastructure. Totally. Yeah, um, there's kind of whole legacies of those yeah. kind of things. You know, if you think about many contexts where there's a larger informal sector mm-hmm. for medicines, what is the historical context and why is that the case? You know, so maybe yeah. there's, there's questions of colonialism, you know, structural adjustment program, mm-hmm. shrinking of the the power of the state as a consequence of those things and therefore or big rural you know much bigger countries with small populations so the yeah. health infrastructure focus in particular areas rural yeah. infrastructure that has a completely different setup mm. i think what you said also about the um potential that there's sometimes distrust in government uh especially if you take sweden as an example a lot of mm. people say here in sweden we have a good system we work well with antibiotics but mm. a lot of i'm not a doctor myself but i know <laughs> that a lot of doctors mentioned this is a little bit of a side note but for vaccination Sweden has a very high level of vaccination without any requirements or like mm. legal ramifications if you don't vaccinate because there's a high level of trust in the mm. government. But I think that's not that's undervalued in a way that that is a very specific context Ooh. for Sweden. Mm-hmm. And it's not um, you can't carry that to other countries for one reason or another. I mean, sure. there are many reasons why it could be that. But I think that's something that's often that's, undervalued. Imagine that's something that has quite a, you know, the, the historical context of why mm-hmm. that's the case. If you think of it. Like what's going on in Myanmar, you know, or the history of Myanmar. Trust in yeah. the formal sector, for official sector is probably low, you know. Absolutely. And at different times, I mean, if it's a crisis situation in one country, there might be a distrust, even if the governmental structure in regards to healthcare is still the same. Other factors impact your trust in the government. You might not have the same trust anymore. Totally. It's really interesting. I really like that you brought this up, that it's more than just this behavioral change. I really mm. think that's people are playing a really easy card and simplifying and say, oh, well, we just need to tell people what to do and change the behavior. But it ignores so many aspects of this really complex problem. It was really nice to hear your part. I think there's, there's some very nice writing on the histories of like the kind of antibiotics and mm-hmm. also of like the microbiology. And one of the things that's striking from reading those kind of histories is how some of these questions have been coming up for quite a long time, yeah. you know? And it just speaks to this thing of not only do people who take medicines who are not policymakers and scientists mm-hmm. have various reasons for why they take them or don't take them. Yeah. Similarly, policymakers and scientists also <laughs> also taking medicines themselves. Yes. But also creating policies and creating, you know, politicians have uh, various, they have to weigh up economic, mm-hmm. uh, pharma, scientists. And so when they make these decisions and also public opinion and some, yeah. or awareness and something, so... And scientific knowledge changes mm-hmm. over time as well. So yeah, well, it seems to be the frontline science is always moving. So mm-hmm. the best method of action right now might be different in ten years. Exactly. As we learn more, yeah. hopefully. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know, even I mean, 
we say like all oh, the behavior needs to change it comes from knowledge and education i mean i know microbiologists working with antimicrobial resistance that do not take their prescribed antibiotics properly and this is example of i mean they see it right in front of their eyes what the problem is but there are reasons there are other factors doctors that smoke you yes. know there, you there's know, a lot of examples there's so many examples yeah. of these i think human behavior reducing, itself is so complex like the weight of evidence is not sufficient in itself yeah. you know there are other reasons why people do things mm -hmm. We're not robots, just no. this <laughs> is right, this is what I do. <laughs> no, not yet, although maybe we... <laughs> maybe, in the beginning. <laughs> so that's one part of what might be not missing from AMR research, but sure. that you're adding to AMR research, mm. this understanding of the complexity of the human side of it. But do you think there's anything else missing in antimicrobial resistance research from your perspective, from your point of view? I guess there would be something, maybe there's um, some need to... How do we start to think about... Uh, maybe some more transdisciplinary questions. You know? Sorry, transdisciplinary. Transdisciplinary. So like, yes. How do we start to kind of go beyond the kind of the notion that it's social science doing this over here and microbiology yeah. is doing over there? There was some really nice work done by um, an anthropologist. I'm not sure where she's from. Maybe the states, which is on salmon. On salmon. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So she does some, but she's started to work with marine biologists. Mm -hmm. You know, so she, part of her work is she's learning marine biology um, methods. Mm -hmm. And so then she's trying to then incorporate it into her fieldwork and ask questions based on that. So um, she, she can never replace, obviously, a marine biologist. But yeah. the idea is that maybe the questions she asks might be slightly different. Mm -hmm. So she's like, you know, idealistically, she might want to follow the life cycle of one salmon or something. I yeah. don't know, you know, just to give an example. Um, and then the idea is that that might generate different, kind of slightly different questions. You yeah. Know? And I, mean, I guess the flip side might be also microbiologists spending some time with anthropologists and kind of in, incorporating some of that knowledge and then kind of asking different questions. I mean, that's... The anthropology of microbes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go, exactly. Changing the perspective. And I mean, that's you don't need to do that individually. That can be done as teams as well, yeah. obviously. I think more broadly, maybe there's something about the kind of economic kind of aspects of it mm -hmm. as well. Kind of wonder if like the market failure kind of question is actually just maybe markets fail. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. And so that needs to be reconceptualized. But I have no yeah. idea that's well beyond my kind of... It's always nice to add another perspective. Uh, and maybe something more personally, there's something about time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this feels like they're kind of... Uh, this is something that uh, Claire and Laurie, two people that I'm working... I think Laurie Anshin might be coming here in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. They're working on this kind of thing of a dad, but this is a quick fix. Yeah. You know, so it kind of allows you to do particular practices say, not care for your pigs as much yeah. because maybe the scale or something like that. That is the case in some places, yeah. that they assume that they can't treat the pigs if they get sick and then they maybe don't use the right materials, for example, on the, on the I don't know what it's called, on the flooring yeah, totally. to protect their feet so then they get sores and the sores can infect. But you could solve the problem by avoiding the sores with good materials and the pigs will be happier. But instead we end up in this situation where you need antibiotics. It's easier to clean it without this. Exactly, it's easier to clean and you can have more pigs yeah. in the same space. Yeah, so I think there was, if we're thinking about that in terms of time, then yeah. like what does... What roles are antibiotics playing in the speed that we work and yeah. expect ourselves to live and get back to work and stuff? And maybe the value of time versus li lives are suffering in the mm. end. I mean, if the solution is we save time now and there's more suffering in the future, then that's maybe not yeah. not a solid <laughs> approach. <laughs> yeah. Something maybe about we need to start thinking a little bit more. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe that could, there's a question that could be raised by many things, but yeah. I think antibiotics... I think it's very important in the mm. antibiotic field. I mean, if you think about the way that working people look at illness, 
it's mm. a lot of people go to work even though they're sick and mm. then you spread the disease i'm sure you don't need antibiotics for a cold but mm. if people come with strep throat to work and maybe you're spreading it everywhere then maybe we're not really appreciating the fact that we could minimize the amount of infections by staying home but sure. time is such a precious resource mm. in today's world that everybody's stressed out and going to work anyways and so we have in the end there isn't it yeah. Time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah time is all we have <laughs> i guess the nice uh, philosophical approach to it as well what's yeah, sure. the value of time and lives and mm-hmm. everything else and maybe that kind of comes back to the kind of economics of it in some ways absolutely maybe. yeah mm-hmm. so you mentioned this um more transdisciplinary so this is one of the things that uac is working on but mm-hmm. how do you feel these transdisciplinary interactions are working right now do you feel that you're respected with your insights when you start working in transdisciplinary teams or does it depend on the group Maybe people that have experience in working with people from different disciplines yeah. have a different approach. Most of the people that we work with in the group just now are mostly kind of have some more depth in anthropology or social science or have a background in that. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, we work in another project which is around non-malarial. They're trying to create an algorithm for non-malarial fever. Okay. So, which is quite a big endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then we have some social science in that. And the bigger project is mostly clinical, but you have various mm-hmm. people. And I think... Something interesting where I wonder if it's uh, the kind of the collegial relations that allows the openness in some ways, you know, so it doesn't feel that when we're discussing things, it's not a personal attack. No. There's a kind of some kind of agreed or some sort of sense of community or something that that, that allows that to. Coming from an academic field and a lot of people have years of education behind them that maybe there's a respect for that. I think so, but I think it, I think it, I feel for me it's almost more that there's a kind of it's not necessarily friendship, but there's yeah. a kind of feeling camaraderie, maybe? camaraderie yeah. you know. So, where in other circumstances, maybe where that isn't there, that a comment might be taken more personally. Yeah. You know I mean, even if it's meant more of the, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of the idea or something like that, you know, that's yeah. If it's the idea that I've generated, then I can take it personally because I feel like you're attacking me. Yeah. We need to be able to discuss, and that means disagree and agree, and come to, I guess, debate sounds a little bit harsh, but Mm -hmm. you need to really be able to talk about the pros and cons of something to come to what the best method might be. Sure, and also if we can't do it in these kind of spaces, then where are we going to get the space to do it in some ways, you know? I think it's really difficult, though, because you can have, like, people adding their disciplines together, but how do you get to start challenging one's yeah. assumptions, you know? And, and that's also where... taking in new assumptions. Totally, I mean, exactly. It's easy to say, from my perspective, this is wrong, but it's harder maybe to say, well, what I've learned my entire career might be very one-sided or very sure. narrow. It's not wrong. It's just maybe not as broad as we thought, maybe not as deep. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. So maybe it takes a little bit of work on both sides. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to hear that there is a camaraderie, especially within these research backgrounds that you can... Yeah, I think like I have experienced, like, you know, in the past, this need to justify myself, mm-hmm. like especially when I'm studying in social science, you know? Coming from uh, people from the natural sciences. You mean, yeah, yeah, you know, sort of medical... Or... Like qualitative versus quantitative research. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. And I think, I'm sure, you know, some of it might be valid in some ways, but sometimes it's also based on misunderstandings. Yeah. And... And I think a lot of times, I mean, yes, it might in a way be statistically better to have numbers, but yeah. if you cannot get numbers for a specific thing, then it's better to know something. Sure, yeah, yeah. That's my, my personal opinion, but hmm. I mean, and even those numbers are often wrong, so <laughs> because they're in complex systems and you're not correcting for one thing or the other, I mean, 
And also, it's like, I think the, it's like the kind of important question is better for what? You know, it yeah. depends what we're doing with exactly. that. What do you want to do with that? You can be really statistically certain about one thing that doesn't help anyone. It's like, well, actually, we still need to know this. Yeah. We don't know about that, so yeah, sure. Figured out yeah. 1% of the issue and there's this much left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do you find that there's anything that's often misunderstood about your discipline? Maybe from people from the natural sciences or maybe even from the general public? I think there's some assumptions or which are to some degree valid, you know, so like uh, there has been a kind of anti-science sentiment in, in anthropology, which I think is perhaps changing a bit. And that has perhaps come about because of the kind the of harsh yeah, treatment, you know, or not harsh treatment, but... Um, well, you were, this is, you're not, you don't... You this don't isn't do real the truth. science. Exactly. Quotes so, around so then that. it kind of gets, you know, yeah. then there's a kind of academic tribalism kind of thing happens. But I think that's that's definitely changing. You know, mm-hmm. there is definitely a shift there. I think the thing that anthropology only deals with behavioral change and belief mm-hmm. uh, is perhaps um, a possible misconception. But that's partly a legacy as well, because it was yeah. maybe ways that anthropologists might have. Well, some anthropologists talk still talk about that, and it's mm-hmm. also relevant in particular context. But it's also something that maybe partly came out of anthropology. So yeah. it's not it's not necessarily a misconception per no, se. No, but it's maybe a not a misunderstanding of the full depth of the field sure yeah, yeah. and how where it is now as yeah. well um, and what the field can contribute now of totally, course totally and i think like taking both of those things into account then where anthropology or at least some anthropology sits is it it speaks to kind of ways of understanding truth and how these things are constructed which is open actually much more to engage with science mm-hmm. but it might require scientists to spend a bit of time to get to understand what it's coming from because yeah. i think the immediate reaction might be to react mm-hmm. but it's there's a bit more sitting i think yeah, she comes to see it's quite productive in some ways. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit of a side question. Sure. Uh, do you have any interesting projects going on right now that you'd like to say a few words on? Um, About AMR or maybe not. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, so I'm trying to finish a paper which is tentatively called Wars and Sweets. Wars and Sweets. Wars and Sweets, yeah. Which yeah. is kind of looking at... It's a kind of semi-fictional piece, which is looking using the kind of metaphors that are being commonly used and also commonly used to talk about medicines, antibiotics particularly, yeah. and bacteria over the last hundred years as a way to tell that history. Yeah. So it's kind of quite succinct. It's really cool. And it started off because I was frustrated with the war metaphors. Yeah. The yeah. So I was like, what would happen if I just wrote the whole story as that, like yeah. using the language that's been used? But then citing scientific papers mm-hmm. to kind of illustrate where either it's coming from or yeah. where particular insights have come and how they've changed. Um, and then at the end of that, I'm wanting to maybe do a more kind of reflexive look at, you know, where, where kind of where things are maybe are now. You know, mm-hmm. you had germ theories kind of dominated yeah. some degree and the microbiome's kind of coming out. And then that's kind of pointing to where I want to go a little bit now, which is I'm hoping this next year to start doing kind of more an anthropology of experts in infectious disease and uh, microbiome science mm-hmm. and look at a little bit at maybe kind of do something slightly biographical, like how they came to their research and the yeah. questions they're asking. Kind of, I feel a little bit like this. <laughs> uh, and, and then, but then I also want to put a little twist on it where I want to also ask about their own personal use of antibiotics and relation to microbes. Oh, that's an incredibly interesting turn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would love to read that. Because I think like, you know, a lot of the attention is on, you know, those lay people over there or something yeah. like that. And I think just to kind of humanize maybe mm-hmm. a little bit experts away in some ways, you know. Personally, it seems like a lot of these maybe experts 
like I said, I know microbiologists that mm. have taken antibiotics incorrectly and they know they're taking them incorrectly and they do it anyways. And a part of me thinks like there's two sides to us. There's maybe the expert side that knows the facts, that knows mm. maybe this is the case. You can ramble them forever, but you still have this absolutely human side. And it's not to say that experts aren't human, but you know, that you will never get rid of, that there will always be some side factor that does something or, oh no, this time it's different or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, thankfully they have that side because that's yeah. where like the okay, maybe something might be wrong or maybe... Exactly. I mean, the human side is good. It's just a really good image for some of these people where, like, you know they know. Hmm. There's no matter no matter of a lack of knowledge or anything. I mean, you can't argue that there's a lack of knowledge. Hmm. And it's just behavior is not dependent on the knowledge all the hmm. time. Sure. It's dependent on a much more complex situation. Sure, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. I like also one thing that you mentioned a little bit, these war headlines, kind hmm. of. Or I think that's what you're talking about. These, like, we're losing the battle against... Sure, yeah, yeah deadly microbes something yeah the apocalypse yeah. talks and everything kind of broad question but how much do you think that might be for example journalists trying to sell an article or researchers trying to emphasize the importance of their work mm. i mean there's many um incentives to maybe make it sound worse than it is or really use it it's it's a serious issue of course but these war metaphors as you say are not always warranted and maybe not helpful and where in this communication do you think the fault might lie i can't remember if it's a microbiologist or a medical a, clini- a clinician mm-hmm. where they're kind of like you know they're kind of kind of what you're saying is like well there's we i appreciate the fact that it's yeah. uh, maybe excessive in times but it's necessary to gain attention mm-hmm. and that's kind of this balance between mm-hmm. what we think it gains and maybe what and there might be something lost as well if you throw war metaphors at somebody forever they're gonna definitely I think get watered down. <laughs> but I think there's also like there is this has been going on for some time as yes. well. You know, so it's almost like a clamoring for attention. But then I think there's also a longer history with the war metaphors where mm-hmm. war metaphors maybe may or may not have some connection to kind of Western notions of nature and notions of domination yeah. and uh, there's a lot of know, harsh which, language in some of these exactly which is paid out in terms of gender issues as yeah. well and colonialism and i think that's damaging and i think it damages the science as much as it damages you know like germ theory was something that came out of yeah. bacteriology and but at the same time you also had people talking about the normal flora but that didn't enter into popular consciousness no. over the last decade and even and then i mean it's starting to start. more but then it's that we still use these, these use these words of good and bad bacteria exactly or the i mean the, it, there's no there, it's very hard to get this understanding that it's a complex exactly. situation there's helpful one bacteria that help us but other ones that help other parts of nature it's, totally it's almost like yeah we're not beyond good and evil i guess yeah it, it's still, <laughs> we've accepted that there's more than just Germ theory, there's more than just bad bacteria, quote-unquote bad bacteria, but it's just adding a category of there's good bacteria. Yeah, which can then be mobilized in the same way that the bad bacteria yeah. was, you know, to sell things or to solve Sell things, things that maybe aren't completely exactly. efficient, but exactly. can make a lot of money. Because it feels natural, it's Yeah, well, exactly, natural it's natural. Based. What is natural? Yeah, that know? overused word of natural. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, but I think that sounds like an incredibly interesting project. Thank you very much. It'd be really nice to see some more of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to stress. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, then I think we might wrap up there. Sounds Do you have good. anything else you'd like to add? No, no. Thank you very much no? for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. It was great. Welcome back. I hope everybody listening enjoyed the interview as much as I did when I gave it. 
Eva, what did you think? Hi, Jenny. I'm very happy to be sitting here with you discussing this interview. <laughs> it was great. I enjoyed listening to it. Um, I had the pleasure to meet Cole when he was here for the workshop that he was teaching in. And um, there were a couple of topics specifically in the interview that I found particularly interesting, starting from this anthropology of microbes. Yeah, I thought it was a really fun perspective that he had. I mean, it's very different from the way we as microbiologists, we both have a background in microbiology, so we think about this in a certain way. And it was nice to kind of get it turned on its head and that you look at it from a very different standpoint. Yeah, I, I kind of felt your surprise when you yeah. said that in the interview. You were like, hey, wait, what? Yeah, I actually missed his workshop. So I was kind of, it was very new to me. I hadn't heard what he was talking about that I don't day. think he actually mentioned uh, anthropology of microbes during the workshop. Okay. But because that also came as a, I was like, huh, this sounds like an interesting concept. Yeah. And actually, uh, when I was listening to the interview now, this concept that, uh, you know, anthropology, which is a science-ology, is a science mm -hmm. that centers in to study humans, how he says that anthropology of microbes is looking at the relationship between humans and microbes as a whole, you know, how microbes have influenced mm -hmm. humans and human maybe history or human culture. It reminded me of an article that I read very recently in the Quantas magazine, which was talking about what is called the holobiont. And this it kind of relates to it because the holobion is the idea that we are not just individuals, but we are individuals that have a microbiome with us, like you were mentioning. So this article was talking about how perhaps we should revisit it, how evolution works on us or on the human species or the species in general, because maybe evolution also plays a role on the holobiome level, right? It's yeah. not just us as an individual, but it's us with our microbes, the relationships between us. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the microbes either, not their evolutionary pathway, but that both together have a joint. Yeah, that the evolutionary path, yeah. it, it's dependent of the relationship between the host and the biomes that they mm -hmm. are on it. Something like that. So it, when he it's mentioned complex, this, yeah. it, it was it reminded me of that. It was like, huh, this is something I just recently read. So I went back and reread that article. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's kind of thinking in a step forward. There is a little bit of controversies of this or holobiont theory, if the evolutionary theory should be changed or revisited mm. according to this. There are some controversies, some people agree with it, some people doesn't, but I think it's good that the conversations and the thoughts uh, and theories continue to develop, right? Yeah, and keep testing it and keep developing our thoughts, not just staying in one spot and thinking yeah, this exactly. is, of course, the case. So, But just one clarification as well, because we used the word microbiome a lot in the interview, and we've talked about it here, but it, what is a microbiome? Yeah, that's true. We haven't talked about microbiome before. Here, no, I don't right? think we have. So the microbiome can be defined as all the microbes, all the microorganisms that are found in a given community. And in this case, we're talking about the human microbiome. So it would be all the microbes that form part of us humans, either because they live on us, like could be the skin, or they can live in us, like in our guts. So all the all the microbes that live with us, uh, that would be the human microbiome. Yeah. And there's also, of course, environmental microbiome. and mm -hmm. the Microbiome can apply to a lot of different things. Yeah, because we talk it can a lot be about a community, the human microbiome. Human here. microbiome. Yeah. And within the human microbiome, you will have the skin microbiome, the mm -hmm. gut microbiome, so on and so forth. Yeah. But in this case, like the whole relationship human microbe, yes. how that is. So, like I said, we talked a lot about the microbiome in the interview, but uh, another thing that Dr. Zilima Hutchison talked about was the original germ theory, saying that 
basically when we originally discovered that bacteria were causing diseases. Before then, we didn't know that bacteria existed, and then we realized that these microscopic organisms were causing disease. So it was kind of connected that all bacteria are bad and cause disease. And we talked about this a little bit in the interview, this whole quote-unquote good and bad bacteria, that in recent years, we talk about the microbiome and how it can be beneficial to humans, how we need some of these bacteria. So we've kind of gone from the germ theory to this microbiome theory, looking at that bacteria aren't all bad or good. You can't classify them in this way. Bacteria are completely independent from us, and we can't just look at it from like a human-centric position because they have their own lives. They have their own evolutionary pathways and everything. Yeah, and I think this also links to the other thing that he talked in the interview, that how the context around microbes had changed from being this negative view, which led also perhaps to these war metaphors that yeah, he, he talks about, about and how method. that over time has changed into seeing the beneficial parts of yeah. microbes and microbiome, and that maybe this is also helping to change the narrative that we should not present everything related to microbes or bacteria as a warfare, like we're mm -hmm. fighting them, because actually the numbers say that the majority of the microbes are either doing nothing or they're yeah. even beneficial for the community or for the human. Yeah. So I find that this is this is a very interesting concept. We already talked in the episode before about this uh, combative language. Yeah. And perhaps when you look at it from an anthropology point of view and a historical point of view, how the narrative through to microbes have changed over time mm -hmm. and what we learn scientifically of microbes have changed over time, that will also change the way we relate to microbes and how we talk about microbes. Yeah. And very recently there was a Twitter discussion, I'm a lot in Twitter, of uh, there were a couple of scientists that were putting out there that we should stop saying, for example, super gonorrhea. And mm -hmm. on the first episode, second episode, we also talk about this resistant, antibiotic yeah. resistant gonorrhea. And these uh, these researchers were saying, we should stop saying super gonorrhea. Super gonorrhea doesn't mean anything. This is not mm -hmm. informative to the public. We should say antibiotic resistant gonorrhea. They are not super gonorrhea. So yeah. how we talk about these things is really important. Mm -hmm. And it kind of oversimplifies and, I mean, negates the severity in a way. Because you say super gonorrhea, you think of, like, this cartoon image of a bacteria with, like, a cape on it, is what uh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not that's I mean, not helping in certain anything. contexts might be useful as an image to teach something or to show yeah. something. But I don't think it's good that the public has that as a reference point, Yeah, right? that like, super gonorrhea is what people know of. Exactly. I mean, a lot of people recognize drug-resistant tuberculosis, for example, which you could call super tuberculosis, but we don't. That hasn't really gotten the same kind of spread in media, I don't think, like any kind of calling it super no, tuberculosis. No, but of course, like, gonorrhea has the extra context of what that people want STD, to talk about. That it's so an STD, so it's a different, yeah, it's so, talked about yeah. differently. But. So if people are already, there is a lot of misconceptions about sexuality and uh, sexually transmitting diseases. Yeah. On top of that, you put the layer of this super gonorrhea. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't want to get this fear to people. Yeah. We just want them to know the truth. Yeah, there are strains mm -hmm. of gonorrhea that are resistant and more difficult to treat, but so-called super gonorrhea. So it, it was interesting to link this yeah. to this recent discussion on, on the media. Yeah. Previous episodes, we have gotten carried away a little bit with the discussion, so yeah. <laughs> we should try to keep it a little bit shorter this time for our audience's yeah. sake. <laughs> I just want to bring up one last thing, because I know I use the word complex so much in this discussion with Dr. Hutchison, but I really, really enjoyed hearing the perspective of somebody that was really thinking about how society, like the impact of society and the impact of history and 
Uh, these different parts of the world have different histories and different backgrounds and different cultures, and that doesn't make one better than the other or one solution better than the other, but that we really need to take all of this into account. And yeah. I think that's something that we really need to think more about yeah, when that, we think about these when things. When I attended the workshop, the, uh, Cole was here uh, to teach at a workshop on antibiotic use and human behavior. Yeah. And his talk was my first contact with this idea that the both the cultural and the historical context of a specific place mm-hmm. or a specific country, as he was saying, either was it a colony before, what type of governmental system they had yeah. had over history. All those things have such a profound impact on how the health systems work yeah. and how and trust in the public the uh, trusts the health yeah. system. Is there a lot of formal, informal markets? This was another of the yeah. talks in the workshop. We will actually feature the interview with one of the other speakers later. Mm-hmm. That was my first contact with this idea. And as you say, I also think it's very important that we have professionals that are putting this out there and that uh, we are able to create systems where the different people that understand this context can work together with the medical doctors, with the clinicians, Mm -hmm. with the researchers on antibiotic resistance that can bring it together. And then it's not just human behavior change, like you were saying. It's not one solution fits all places. So how can we get ahead? How can we take in consideration that specific context and make the behavior change work? Yeah. And also that we should stop talking about this as like a lack of knowledge. In some cases, yeah, there is a lack of knowledge, but it's not just, I mean, there are people that have all the knowledge and aren't doing it right either. And there are people that we say, oh, they don't know what they're doing. No, it's because of a different thing. It's because of the culture and the background and the society. And it's not that they don't know what they're doing or they're not educated. Like that's, kind of looking down on people in a way that you shouldn't. And I think I really enjoyed talking to him about this, that we really need to turn around the way we think. It's not, we have all the answers. It's, yeah. we need to apply some knowledge to I a specific context. I see a little bit like we, or some places are being judgmental towards others, yeah. where we should perhaps look at the behaviors and the specific situations in countries or places from a standpoint of ignorance, or I would even say a standpoint of love, where you actually assume that everybody's doing their best with the information they have, Mm -hmm. with their culture and their background they have. And then once you can study that and you can understand it, you can perhaps promote a change that would actually work in that place. Exactly. So, yeah, I I thought it was very interesting. And I think it's something we should keep working on. But I don't, like you said, we shouldn't get talk yeah, too long, I think talk your ears it. off. <laughs> yeah, I really hope that people, even though I, we know that the sound maybe wasn't uh, that enjoyable, yeah. but I really hope that... Uh, you enjoyed the content. Yes, and yeah. that the, everybody listening is getting now with this fourth episode to see that there is so many different people, experts in different mm-hmm. areas, and that we are all working towards kind of a common goal, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to make it better. <laughs> and if you want to read more from Dr. Dilima Hutchison, he wrote a chapter for the Wellcome Trust with a few of his colleagues that he also mentioned in the interview, and we'll link to that as well so you can see more of his perspective. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. 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 So more uh, time to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, but Jenny, thank you so much for this interview, and it was great to discuss. It was a pleasure to give this interview, actually. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> good, good. Keep the good work. <laughs> well, thank you. So today's news section, we have two recent published articles. Uh, one actually from kind of close to us. Jenny, yeah. uh, you have an interesting paper looking at the environment and antibiotic resistant genes, right? Yeah. 
Actually, in our first episode, we mentioned a different center in Sweden at Gothenburg University called CARE, the Center for Antibiotic Resistance Research. This center published recently an article called Fecal Pollution Can Explain Antibiotic Resistance, Gene Abundances in Anthropogenically Impacted Environments, published in Nature Communications on January 8th, 2019. So this was a really interesting article because it looks at, like you said, resistance genes in the environment. And often this has been thought to be associated with antibiotics in the environment are leading to an increase in antibiotic resistance genes in the environment. Because the presence of the antibiotics in the environment will select for those genes to be present in the environment, right? We're selecting for resistance in the environment is the idea. But this paper was actually looking at a marker for human gut bacteria so that we can see how much of this presence of resistance genes is from or maybe associated with human gut bacteria in the environment, which is based on fecal contamination. Yeah, because their hypothesis is that maybe like grosso modo would say, Mm -hmm. the presence of these genes in the environment are not due only to selection or mainly to selection, but perhaps because in many of these environments there's a lot of contamination from fecal uh, wastewaters. Basically wastewater that maybe has been treated, but there's still some presence left or something like that. Mm -hmm. So this was really interesting. I mean, it's a a large scale, so we're maybe not looking for like the finer levels of selection, but in general it seems to be very associated with fecal contamination, or the presence of antibiotic resistance genes is very associated with fecal contamination. Without taking the importance, of course, that there are some places in the environment which have high levels of antibiotics. And in those places, selection possibly is happening constantly. Yeah, they did find one area where there isn't a connection to fecal contamination. That was in... To fecal contamination or to... Not not Not, associated with fecal contamination. Not associated, okay. Yeah, which was near manufacturing plants where the effluent from the manufacturing plant, so what comes out from the antibiotic manufacturing process, leads to really high levels of antibiotics in the environment. And there they don't see an association with fecal contamination. More like a selection process. Yeah. So when there's a really high level of antibiotics with this setup, they can still see that resistance is selected for basically in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's not due to contamination. So this was interesting. And it's one of those antibiotics in the environment papers. Maybe that's something that we need to keep working on. Yeah, because in this one health approach that we talk about, both the human side, the animal side and the environmental side, they all are part of a cycle Mm. that is connected. So this paper is looking at the environment. Very cool. So you had a different paper, Eva. Yeah, for this week I chose a paper which kind of it's near my heart because uh, I chose this paper. It's a paper published in the PNAS journal, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. That's a very long <laughs> name for a journal. And it's titled Multidrug Resistant Plasmids Repress Chromosomally Encoded T6SS to Enable Their Dissemination. This is kind of like a complex title yeah. for uh, the general uh, pal out there. Uh, and this was published on uh, 22nd of January. I chose it because it's a very biology-based paper and mm. a very genetics-based paper, and because it looks into plasmids, which I spent the first half of my PhD studying plasmids, so I kind of felt nice to read it and to yeah. bring it to the people out there listening to us. And it's actually basically, the summary is looking at the transmission of plasmids in a specific bug, Acinetobacter baumani, and understanding how can these plasmids actually transmit between different strains mm. of a 
Acinetobacter baumani. This is relevant for several reasons. One is that Acinetobacter baumani is one of the four priority pathogens by WHO, so it's actually being used right now in the panels to look for new antibiotics, and it's yeah. one of the priority ones that the, we need antibiotics for because this bacteria can contain a, an array of many different plasmids that carry antibiotic-resistant genes. And a plasmid is basically a piece of DNA that doesn't belong to the chromosome of the bacteria, so it's not really necessary for the bacteria mm-hmm. to be there. Sometimes they're called um, egoistic DNA or yeah. selfish DNA because it, it's not part of the bacteria and it has its own fate, kind of what mm-hmm. it wants is to be able to spread. But it can contain a lot of antibiotic-resistant genes, and it promotes the horizontal transfer of antibiotic yeah. resistance. So it can spread from one bacteria to another without having to be born. And yeah, cell exactly. Born, but so, it can spread from two different cells. And this paper is looking into the transmission. And for this transmission of the plasmids to happen, two bacteria need to yeah. be close together. They need to be in contact because the transmission of this plasmid is actually a physical process, yeah. right? So they need to be close. Then they build a bridge, kind of, and then the plasmid can transmit. Mm-hmm. And in this particular species, this process of transmission of the plasmid, it's opposite to a process that this bacteria can do as well, which is killing the bacteria around it also by close contact. So let's look at it like two processes that need two bacteria close together and both of them are opposite. One tries to kill the bacteria next mm-hmm. to it. The other one tries to send a plasmid to the other bacteria. Yeah. If the bacteria... for the plasmid, it doesn't... I mean, if the other cell is dying, it doesn't help the plasmid to move. The purpose of the plasmid is to spread. And if the bacteria next to it is being killed by this other system, then it won't be able to yeah. spread. So what this paper is so cool is looking into how can this spread of plasmids can still happen if this bacteria has this inherent system that might avoid the transmission of mm-hmm. plasmids. And what they actually saw is that the plasmids have evolved a system that represses this contact-dependent killing that yeah. the bacteria have. So what it does is that, you know, molecularly, genes that are present in the plasmid are able to stop the killing system, and hence the plasmid can spread to other yeah. bacteria. So it's kind of in the same cell. I mean, there's these conflicting systems that are working against each other in a way. But it's interesting that the plasmid has evolved its own way to counteract the host system. Yeah, pl- plasmids are so amazing. Yeah, That's why, plasmids uh, are super interesting. <laughs> yeah, they're also scary because, you know, yeah. they can spread uh, all this resistance around. Yeah. But I found this paper, even though, you know, it's very biology and basic science kind of, it's not applied science, Mm. but understanding how these processes work potentially can help out to find new targets for antibiotics. Because if we think like this has been in the news a little bit, we've covered by the news and what they're pointing it out is that if we know that this repression that happens enables the spread of antibiotic resistance, then if we can avoid an inhibition to happen, then we can prevent the plasmid to be spread. So those kind of, we need this basic science in order to move forward. And it's one of those ways that instead of minimizing the use of antibiotics, we can kind of minimize the spread of resistance somehow is the idea. Yeah. So it was very cool to read it and try to translate it into simple words. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to link to both of these articles. And also we will leave some links to some of the news coverage that has been done about these two articles as well. But we did also want to mention one, there's a, so much going on in the world about antimicrobial resistance. So it's kind of difficult to, for us to choose what to talk about. It's very hard to prioritize what to talk about. But we wanted to mention something that's happened on the world stage lately. At the World Economic Forum in Davos that most people probably have heard something about, 
The UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock unveiled a five-year action plan and a 20-year vision to fight antimicrobial resistance by 2040. And this is a really big step, kind of based on what they're prioritizing, their focus on. So one of the things they're really looking at is antibiotic delinkage, so paying for the value of the antibiotic, not the volume that you sell. So this conflict with the economic incentive to sell as much of the antibiotic as possible yeah, to get money back. Yeah, because we don't want to sell a lot. We exactly. want to actually use as little as possible to keep the antibiotics yeah. working. The current incentives in the pharmaceutical industry don't really work for antibiotics. Yeah. And that's what they're kind of focusing on. And that's that's quite new. This makes them a bit of a leader in that field. And hopefully this puts a lot of pressure on fixing that problem. Go UK. Yeah, Go now, UK. Now, yeah. now the pressure is on other countries to actually follow an example. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that in this let's say, tumultuous political situation we have in Europe and yeah. the UK, that they, it says a lot of them that they're actually putting mm-hmm. attention, and, time and effort to yeah. this problem. And it's really nice to see that this can happen despite, I mean, internal conflicts in a country or other things, that this kind of thing is still prioritized. Looking at the important yeah. stuff. It's right? really nice I'm to see. I'm not saying the other thing is not important. but No, no, there's a lot of important things, yeah. but I'm glad that this doesn't get put, yeah, push aside, pushed to the back uh, because, yeah, because it's so crucial that we work on this problem. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. And then we have, uh, since this is uh, the first episode we had in 2019 was very early in the year, but now the WHO has released a list of the main 10 threats to global health. And again, I guess this year, antimicrobial resistance is one of them. So uh, antimicrobial resistance still is a high priority at the World Health Organization. I think it will be for years to come, but... Yeah, but it's good that it's still still a focus. Yeah, I mean... If any day it actually pulled down from that list, then it would mean that we are doing a good job, I guess. Yeah. So hopefully we can get there sometime. But mm-hmm. for now, it's good at least that the focus is on the problem. Well, thank you. And here we put our end to this episode. Yeah. Thank you for listening. See you here next month. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.